Ephesians chapter number one tonight. So we kind of uh, introduced it a little bit last week, and, and tonight is very much introductory as well. I uh, really just kind of hit on the first two verses, and then uh, I want to give like an application, again, kind of talking about this series in general. So uh, this series is really all about our identity, as, uh, as the slide suggests, and really what we're trying to do this year in our church is answer that question, who are you, or who do you think you are? And uh, it's a question that we're going to talk about as we go through this study tonight and as we go throughout this series. And really, Ephesians is broken down into two sections. We have the first two chapters, which is really finding our identity. It's all about the gospel, understanding who we are in Christ. And then part two is chapters three and four, and it's kind of the practical side of it all. It's about living the gospel, understanding how we should live as a Christian. But Paul is specifically writing this letter to uh, the church at Ephesus, those that are, are in that, uh, that city of Ephesus. And we talked a little bit about it last week, but Ephesus, just for a little background information, uh, it's a cosmeto- uh, cosmetology, cosmopolitan city. Just excuse me. Uh, there were 230 cities that were dotted along the coastline there in Asia Minor. We had some maps up there last week, and many of you might have maps in your Bible in the back, and you can kind of look through there if you want at another time. Thank you. Uh, but Ephesus was a very, uh, very religious center, very religious city. Uh, but it wasn't necessarily in line with, obviously, Jesus Christ. Uh, a lot of pagan worship was going on. Uh, they had the, uh, the temple of Artemis or the temple known as Diana uh, that many of us have heard of. It's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Very pagan society, uh, very much into the occult, very much into magic. Uh, people were very confused in Ephesus. Uh, religion and, and all of those things that were going on. So in a sense, it would kind of be like a mix, I think I said last week, of almost like a New York City and a, and a Las Vegas and just kind of that, that concept in our minds. So great city had a lot to offer, but at the same time, very wicked, uh, very corrupt as well. Uh, so it was one of those things where it was, it was tough for the gospel to go forward, but Paul spent uh, several years there kind of establishing the church and, and really uh, it went from a from nothing to a, a truly thriving church. And so really when he's writing this letter, it's been about 10 years and he's writing this letter and trying to help them understand who you are, not who you were, but who you are in Christ. Um, and if you want to have a summary for the book, and I think I have this in your notes before we really dive into this tonight, it's, not, it's, it's about you're not who you used to be, so don't live like you used to live. And that's important for us all to understand. You're not who you used to be. And what I'm talking about before you got Christ, before you, before you got Christ, man, I cannot talk tonight at all. Before you got saved, you were a different person, right? The Bible says uh, any man being Christ, he's a new creature. We should be different uh, by design. Uh, so before Christ, uh, we were living in sin for the flesh. We were living for the things that we wanted to do. As a Christian, who should we be living for? Ourselves, right? No, Jesus, yes. And that's kind of what he's trying to help us understand, that you're not who you used to be if you're saved, so don't live like it. But how many times in our Christian life do we live like we were still lost or we're still lost because, oh, it's all about me. But as we've even talked about on Sunday mornings, it's not about us, it's all about him. And these first two verses, and and really it's kind of uh, very similar to what we did in Philippians, uh, there's a lot of different descriptions that we have here and a lot of pairs uh, that we see here. And Let me just jump right into it. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you, excuse me, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me go ahead and pray. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us as we uh, study your word tonight, Lord. And uh, God, I, I do love these Bible studies on Wednesday night as we just jump right into the scripture and, and verse by verse and try to uh, decipher and understand uh, what these verses are talking about and telling us. And, and God, I pray that you'd help us on the, on the bigger scheme of things as we're trying to understand who we are and understand what our identity is. And Lord, as, as I've said and as I've stated, there is an identity crisis in our land. People don't know who they are. And the sad truth and the sad reality is Christians don't know who they are. Instead of living for Christ and in Christ and through Christ, they're living for themselves. And God, I pray that you'd help us as we go through this study in Ephesians on Wednesday night for the, for the next many, many months and probably throughout this whole year. And God, as, as, we, as we journey in this uh, Sunday morning series, understanding that we were made for more, God, I pray that you'd help truly grow our church. I feel like this can be a phenomenal year for our church if we get some things established and, and set straight. And God, I pray that you'd help the church to, to get behind not what I'm saying, but what the Bible is, is giving us, Lord, because everything that we're, we're teaching is from your word. And God, I pray that you bless this lesson tonight. Uh, bless the class. We love you in Christ's name I pray. Amen. First thing we need to jump into is this. There are two descriptions of authority. Two descriptions of authority. I think he's got most of the blanks in there for your notes tonight if you look, look up at the screen. But it starts out in verse number one. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, first we need to understand that Paul is the writer of the book of Ephesians. Uh, Paul wrote really about half of the New Testament. I think at least 13 books, uh, possibly 14. Some speculate he wrote Hebrews. Some speculate he didn't write Hebrews. Whether he did or didn't, it's beside the point. The thing is, most of the New Testament is attributed to the apostle. Paul and his ministry. Even the book of Acts, he didn't write it, but he's, he's a significant figure in the books, book of Acts and even starting the church. And as we read last week and many things that were there, and I was thinking about it this week, you know, we talk about the Apostle Paul a lot and his life and his ministry. Um, a truly great man of God uh, to, for, for, for God to, to speak of him and, and talk about him and his ministry. But we have to understand that he was still just a man. He was still a man, which means he still had struggles in his own life. And, and he tries to help us understand that in some of his writings, that he struggles with things just as much as us. But we can still learn some great lessons from his life. You know, before he was saved, uh, what was his name? Saul, yes. And where was he saved? On the road to where? Damascus. Very good. Now, just an amazing thing, transformation that happened in his life when he saw that light and and Jesus, you know, uh, was, was, was speaking with him, and he got saved. Uh, and, and as we talked about, in a sense, Jesus flattened him because he had a lot of knowledge of God, and, and he used his knowledge in a very oppressive way in forcing people to do things. And anyone that opposed that knowledge that he had, he would stone them or he would hold the coats of those that stoned him. He was there when Stephen was stoned to death. Uh, but Jesus flattened him, in a sense, on the road to Damascus and gave him a new identity. And the identity was not one steeped in religion, but one that was centered around Jesus Christ. And that's very important. You see, when Jesus comes into your life, he doesn't think, make things more confusing. He brings more clarity. And that's what he did with the Apostle Paul in his life. He brought clarity to his life. The people at Ephesus, as we talked about, were a people who believed in false gods and the power of magic. But God worked special miracles by Paul in Ephesus, and the church witnessed some amazing things from all evidence the spectacular was necessary in order to get through to some of these people. But in verse number one, Paul tells us where his authority lies. He tells us why he is qualified to write this letter. And the first source of his authority is this. He's an apostle, as the verse suggests. 
Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we need to understand a few things about apostles. An apostle is one who is sent by God with a message to those who have not heard the good news. Apostles were personally commissioned by Jesus Christ. This is very important. Personally commissioned by Jesus Christ. So if someone was personally commissioned by Jesus Christ, can someone be an apostle today? No. So here's why. Because the ones that were personally commissioned by Jesus Christ had witnessed his life. They'd witnessed his resurrection. Paul was instrumental in the founding and establishing of many New Testament churches. He had authority given to him by Jesus Christ. But apostles had authority to do miraculous things, pen scriptures. However, that line did not continue. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this, but... The truth is, I am not an apostle. No pastor today is an apostle. Uh, I've even read some things here recently where you know, some people are like, oh, you can consider me an apostle because they're in charge of many churches. Well, that's, that's not true. That's not biblical in the way that I read my Bible. But there, are, there is no present-day apostolic succession. I know the Roman Catholic Church thinks the Pope is in line with that apostolic succession. That's false. Because one of the requirements is that you have to, have to have personally seen and heard Jesus Christ. Witness his resurrection. Talks about this in Matthew 28 and Luke 24, Acts 1, Acts 10, 1 Corinthians 9. Witness his ascension. An apostle was one who was handpicked by Jesus for this office. Paul was an apostle, but one abnormally born, as it talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. But he was the last apostle chosen by Jesus for this office. So just wanted to give that little background. So if you ever hear of someone saying today, I'm an apostle, they're wrong. And we have scripture to back that up. And again, no one that is alive today witnessed Jesus' birth, right? <laughs> no one that is alive today witnessed Jesus' ministry in, in the person or in the flesh. They, none of them witnessed his ascension. And they can say, well, I saw it on TV. Well, if that's different. You know, just because you saw it on TV doesn't make it, make it real or, or true. Uh, Paul was an apostle. He was set apart, chosen by God, sent with the message of God. But then notice the second thing, second source of his authority. He was commissioned by the will of God. As it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This isn't something Paul set out to do necessarily on his own. When God speaks to us, he, he speaks to us and he, he presents his will for our lives. God called him. He sent him. I want you to understand something. The call of God is not just subject to the lives of pastors, evangelists, and missionaries. The call of God, the will of God, is for all believers, all Christians. Now, his call for your life might not be the call to preach, or I mean to pastor. might not be the call to be a missionary. But he has called you to glorify him, as we talked about on Sunday. He has called you to go and witness and share the good news of Jesus Christ. So God has called us all to do something. Everyone is called by God to do something. And we need to study his word to understand what that is. Next thing we see is this. Two characteristics of the Ephesians. Two characteristics of the Ephesians. The Bible says, as we continue on, to the saints in Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice he says, first of all, to the saints. Now, who are the saints? They play in New Orleans, right? Some of you guys will get that later. This, <laughs> never mind. Uh, the saints are all Christians. This is important. Saints are all Christians. Now, there's discrepancy with some religions with this. This series is about understanding our identity. Who are we? And I'll get more into that later. But as a Christian, we need to understand who we are. And when Paul is addressing the saints... 
he's not addressing the most spiritual in the church. He's not addressing people that are already dead. (laughs) He's addressing those that are saved. So if you're saved tonight, you know what you are? You're a saint. You can start calling me St. Chris if you like. (laughs) St. Christopher, patron of travel or whatever it is. I know, right? But we are all saints because a saint is one that is set apart. It's one that has uh, been set apart. Uh, So when we think of saints, sometimes we think of someone that's been canonized by the church. And I read about the Roman Catholic Church today that in order to achieve sainthood, you have first to be dead, which that's that's kind of an important thing. (laughs) But you have to achieve a certain level of holiness and two verifiable miracles to your credit. So basically, you have to have two verifiable miracles, which is the reason why there's so few saints in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I'm not completely sure of this, but I read one person stated that there were something like 35,000 pages worth of list of good deeds that you had to attain to be a saint, as well as having two verifiable um, miracles that were performed. And I was reading something that, you know, Mother Teresa, uh, I don't think she's a saint yet because there was only one verifiable uh, miracle to her account. So they're still looking for that second miracle, so she's not a saint, according to them. But the Bible specifically says that saints, and when Paul is addressing this, he's talking about Christians. He's talking about those who are saved. A saint is this. I think I have this in your notes. It means a sanctified one. A sanctified one. It means one that God has made righteous and set aside for himself. So I kind of joke that you know I'm a saint, but we are saints too. We're all saints if we're saved, if we have accepted Jesus Christ to be our Savior. God has sanctified you. He has set you apart. If you've accepted him, he's done the work. All you did was receive it. So Paul isn't writing this letter to the chosen few. He's writing this letter to all Christians. Even if you don't act like a saint or perform miracles or have a list of good deeds, if you're saved, you're still a saint. Now, some people don't live like saints, and we know that. But why did Paul choose to refer to them this way? And this is important. I don't think I have this in notes, but this is important. He wanted them to understand who they are. He wanted them to understand how God sees them. God sees them. God sees us, if we're saved, as a saint, as a sanctified one. And a saint is this. Get this down. A saint is set apart to live a holy life. A saint is set apart to live a holy life. Do we have that? No? That's all right. A saint is set apart to live a holy life. As a Christian, you are set apart to live a holy life, to live a life that is well-pleasing to your Savior, not a life that is lived for your glory, for your honor. Here's the significance of this. God considers you a saint, so live like you're a saint and not like a sinner. (laughs) That's what it comes down to. As a Christian, we are a saint, we are sanctified, we are to, to live a holy life, so live like you're set apart. Act like you've been set apart. And then he continues on to the saints, not the New Orleans saints, but to the Christians, and to the faithful, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> in Christ Jesus. Paul is burdened for their faithfulness in Christ. The church in Ephesus was one of the strongest and most mature churches that existed at this present time. So Paul is praising them here for that. He is saying, not only are you saints because you believed in Jesus Christ, but even better, you are faithful saints. And this is important. 
You place faith in Jesus and you're standing firm in your faith. Let me ask a question. Can there be unfaithful saints? Yes. There's a lot of unfaithful saints because you're still set apart. You're a Christian. But if you're not doing what God's called you to do, you're not being faithful to him, right? So in a sense, you're unfaithful saints. So what he's doing is he's encouraging those that are actually being faithful to God, that are living for God, that are doing what God wants them to do. Here's the truth. Churches are full of individuals who have been saved but aren't living like they are, (laughs) aren't living like they have been saved. They're living for the world, and therefore they're struggling with an identity crisis. You read the book of Corinthians, and Paul is addressing a church that is very worldly, that is very corrupt, that is full of saints, full of Christians, but they're not acting like they're living a holy life. They're acting like themselves, acting like the world. And the truth is that is many American churches today, full of unfaithful saints. The saints in Ephesus didn't become faithful on accident. You don't become faithful by just attending church regularly. I want you to understand that. It's important to attend church regularly, but just because you attend church regularly doesn't mean you're a faithful saint. Becoming a faithful saint, becoming a faithful Christian takes discipline in the Christian life. It's easy to become a saint in the sense of you have to accept the gift of salvation. You're a saint. You're a Christian. You're set apart. Becoming faithful takes time, doesn't it? It takes effort. The life of a disciple is not just a one-time thing. All right, I'm a disciple. Yeah, you're a disciple of Christ, but it's a continuous journey. And that's why the discipleship process that we're underway is not like, all right, I went through the four classes, so I'm good. There's still more to, to discover, more to learn about Jesus Christ. Becoming faithful takes time and effort, but one of the most rewarding things that you can ever accomplish is being faithful to Jesus Christ, living for him. And we're going to talk more about this later, at a later time. We continue on. We see two desires of Paul. Two desires of Paul. Verse number two, he says, grace be to you and peace. Excuse me one second. Grace be to you and peace. This is an expression that we see continuously in Paul's letters. We even talked about this in Philippians in that study. It shows his deep love and concern for the believers. Grace properly means this, favor. I know it means, yes, God's riches at Christ's expense, unmerited, but it's, it's really favor. It's not deserved, but it's greatly needed to find joy in our journey, as we talked about the journey towards abundant life in the Philippians study. Look, we need favor. We need God's favor in our thanksgiving, in our stewardship, in our lives. Who in here doesn't want God's grace? I think anyone in here wants God's grace. Who in here doesn't desire God's favor upon your life? But do you notice what Paul is doing here? He's wishing favor. He's wishing grace on others' lives. Remember when he's writing most of these letters, where is he? He's in jail. He's in prison. But he's not so concerned about himself. He's concerned about others. That's why he's writing these letters, to encourage them, to challenge them. He's in need of grace for himself and for his own life, but he's wishing grace upon them. You know, one thing about Paul, too, I was, you know, kind of thinking about today. Paul was constantly under attack, was he not? You know, for, for his commission, for his call, uh, for, for his stand against, uh, against the, the world and, and towards Christ. He was attacked from religious leaders. He was attacked from non-religious leaders. But the amazing thing about Paul's life is that it did not deter him. He didn't let others define him. 
And how often do we let others define who we are based on what they say, based on what they see? You see, his answer to those that were attacking him for advancing the gospel was the same for those that weren't attacking him. I wish grace and peace upon your life. You see, Paul's desire for them is to experience grace, but also find peace. And I want you to understand a very important thing tonight. I have this in your notes highlighted. But the only way to find peace is to first experience grace. The only way to find peace is to first experience grace. God's grace, God's undeserved favor upon our life. It's because of grace that we can have peace. Peace with God and peace with ourselves and peace with others. Grace is the fountain which the river of peace flows. In a world like ours, peace is a wonderful blessing for a saint of God, is it not? Out of grace, we can experience the peace that passeth all understanding. And that's an amazing thing when you experience that peace in your life. So the source of true joy is the grace and peace from God. As he says, grace be to you and peace as he continues on, we see nextly, next thing, the two sources of blessings. Two sources of blessings. From God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes people are confused when our Savior is addressed this way, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we have three names given? What do they mean? Briefly, the term Lord is a title, much like king or president. The term Jesus is his actual name, and the term Christ is why he came. It reveals his mission to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And then we see also here where it says, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This word and used here is from the Greek word chi, which reveals equality. Jesus Christ, though he, di- though he had a different function and role from God the Father, he is equal in power and authority to God. Both are equal, both are God, and both together are the two sources of a believer's blessings. All believers flow directly from God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. So we see the two sources of blessings. And now I want to kind of close out tonight, and I think I have some of this in your notes, but talking about our identity. This is really kind of an introductory thing, and really can't wait until the next few weeks as we continue this. Now, the book of Ephesians, just to add a little preface, and we'll talk about this in weeks to come, Uh, It's a very, not necessarily confusing book, but a lot of people have taken this out of context. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of people that believe in um, Calvinist or Calvinism because of books like this. And what what they've done is they've taken words, and instead of looking at the whole scope of it and looking at other scriptures, they're taking certain scriptures and references and trying to define it the way they want to define it. But I still believe that salvation is available for all, not just for some. So I wanted to preface that before we go on. If you believe that salvation is only for the elect, if certain people can only be saved, then you don't understand the full concept of the Scriptures. Because the Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For all have sinned, all come short of the glory of God. God has offered it to everyone, and I'm not going to go into deep depth tonight about that, but uh, that is to come in, in the weeks to, in the weeks to come, so I'm excited about that. But as we talked about tonight in, in kind of an introductory Uh, This series is really about answering this question. Who do we think we are? The truth is most of us don't even realize that we have an identity crisis. And here's the key. We're going to try hard to focus over the next few months. There's a who that defines us. There's a who that the world says we are, and there's a who that God says we are. Our identity will continue to be shaken and altered until we understand who we are in God. The question was asked, who are you? But the question should be asked this, who does God say that you are? And in Ephesians, specifically in chapter 1, God tells us who we are. 
If we're saved, he tells us who we are. When Paul met Jesus Christ, his identity was completely rewritten. The moment you get saved, your identity should be completely rewritten. As it says in, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. But there's a phrase that's used over and over in this epistle and in other epistles as well. And I think it's 75 times in our Bible and uh, different uh, aspects of that phrase, probably over 150 times in the New Testament. And it's the phrase, in Christ or in Christ Jesus. So quickly, I want to walk down through a couple of these in your Bible here in Ephesians. The Bible says in verse number one, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. You see, this is the, the premise for this series. We need to understand that as a Christian, we are in Christ Jesus. And Paul refers to this a lot, not just in this letter, but throughout other letters. Verse number two, he talks about in heavenly places, in Christ. You should circle these things or underline these things. Uh, verse number 10 he says that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Verse number 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Uh, verse number five, it says by Christ Jesus. So same type of uh, thought process there. Um, verse number 20, it says, which he wrought in Christ. Chapter two, verse number six. And he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created what? In Christ Jesus. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. You know, sometimes we're far off, made, uh, made nigh by the blood of Christ. Uh, chapter 3, verse number 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Verse 11 of chapter 3, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I think that's it for, for Ephesians. There might be another one that I missed. But the, the point is, we need to understand that as a Christian, who are we in? Christ. We are in Christ Jesus. And this is very, very important. This is really the main theme of this letter. Have you ever considered how you define who you are? Sometimes people ascribe the definition of who they are to their career, to their hobbies, perhaps their family roles. While all of these things are good things, do they really describe the purpose for which you were created? No. The purpose for which you were created as a Christian, as a child of God, was, as I said on Sunday, to glorify him, to bring honor to his name. And a lot of times we don't realize that, that everything I do in my life should be to please God, to bring honor, to bring glory to his name, to worship him. Everything should be about Christ because I'm in Christ. But so often... Now, I can say this for myself. Instead of being in Christ, I'm in Chris. <laughs> I take the T off. And sometimes you're the same way. Instead of in Christ, you're in your name. Because it's about us and not about him. All of these things, again, are good things, but they're not why we were created. Uh, I wasn't necessarily created uh, to be a father and a, and a pastor and all those things. Because here's the, here's the truth. Those are all temporary. They're going to end. One day I'm going to die, unless Jesus comes back, and I'm going to stand before him, and, and if I was saved, I'll be able to enter into heaven, but in heaven there's, there's no marriages. So I'm not going to be a pastor in heaven. I'm not going to be a father in heaven. I'm just going to be one that was in Christ, and so are you. So we need to understand our identity 
is not tied to a temporary thing in this world. But, but I'm a father, but I'm a mother. Yes, you are, but that's temporary. The eternal scope of it all is you're in Christ. You're his child. You're his creation. Who are you? Who do you think you are? The answer to that question is found within this book. It's not about who we are. It's about who we are in Christ. And that's important. It's not about who we are. It's about who we are in Christ. I heard this analogy this week and kind of really stood out for me. Picture your life like a pie. Some of you are probably getting hungry right now. Apple pie, peach pie, whatever pie you want. But when Jesus came into your life, for many, he just became another piece of the pie. But is that biblical thinking? No. Jesus isn't just another piece of the pie. In a sense, Jesus is the whole pie. He's the, everything revolves around him. Everything flows through him. He's the one that holds everything together. Our identity is or should be in him. Everything that you place your identity in concerning this world is destructible. But an identity in Jesus Christ is indestructible. If I define myself based on my accomplishments, there will always be a, well, now what? Here's what I mean. I've got a long list of accomplishments in my life, and so do you. There are things that you've accomplished. You know, I think of uh, the, the people, the athletes that have, that have won, you know, the biggest stage. They've won championships. But, you know, usually for them, it's, it's, well, now what? Well, I won this, but that brings satisfaction for, like, five minutes. But then it's, well, now what? Well, what's next? Well, i got to win another championship because that really defines me. i I got I to win another championship, but, but what happens when they retire? Well, who are they? Well, yeah, they're, they're still a champion, but it, here's the point I'm trying to make is they're always searching for their identity of what defines them. But as a Christian, your identity is in Christ, in Jesus. It doesn't matter if it, your list of accomplishments and there's nothing wrong with having accomplishments. But I've even noticed that in my life. You know, I do something, I achieve something that's, that's good, that's significant, but then it's like, well, well, now what? Now what can I do? Because I've got to redefine that. You know, for me in golf, you know, I love to play golf and and one of the barriers you know, for me was to, to break 70, which is a huge hurdle. And I finally did it a couple years ago. But then it's like, well, now what? Well, now I got to get better. Now I got to do this. But in a sense, my role is always kind of redefining myself. But in Christ, my role is always constantly defined. If your identity is in temporal things, then your identity will constantly be changing. You'll be in a never ending search of really what a new reality show should be called Finding My Identity. And really, that's kind of what the world and even what Christians are doing. We're always trying to find our identity in temporal things. But Jesus has stated in his word, our identity is in him. So it doesn't matter what around you changes. Even if everything around you crashes, Jesus won't crash. The stock market might crash. You might lose your money. Now, some people stake their identity in their money, how much money they have. And I love what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, 24. He says, but none of these things move me. Here's what Paul is saying. These things don't move me. They don't alarm me. They don't deter me from my purpose. What was his purpose? To glorify God, to advance his kingdom, to do what God had called him to do. Paul had seen the risen Christ. His identity wasn't in what was happening in the present. His identity was anchored in the future. And here's the truth. If your faith is in an individual, at some point, in some way, that individual will let you down. (laughs) If your faith is in me, I promise you, I will let you down. It's going to happen. It's probably already happened for probably most of you. Because I'm human, because I'm a sinner. 
But if your identity is in Christ, if your faith is in Christ, understand that he'll never let you down. So here's the real question with this series. What would it take to get you to quit living for Christ? What would it take to get you to quit living for Christ? And, and I know many of, of us, if not all of us, would say, well, nothing. I'll always live for Christ. But how many have known someone that maybe still is saved, but they were in church, and then now they're not in church. They're not really serving God, not living for God. Many of us do. So for them, there was something that was the cause of them to quit living for Christ. And there's a lot of, there's a plethora or myriad of reasons for that. But here's what it comes down to in my synopsis of it all. Their identity wasn't staked in Christ. Their identity was staked in something in this world. Something that was temporal versus something that was eternal. How much disappointment and hurt would it take for you to quit coming to church? Now that happens frequently. People get upset with leaders or a bunch of hypocrites over there. Truth is, they probably are. Because we're sinners. All sinners saved by the grace of God. But when you give up on church, when people give up on the institution which Christ purchased with his own blood, we're showing where our identity was tied. I'm not saying that, you know, certain things wrong with the church, you know, you shouldn't try to get those fixed or try to find another church. But what happens so often when, when people get upset with the church, instead of finding another church that maybe is doctrinally sound, where maybe it was differing, I'm done. I've tried it. You know what? I'm done. All you're doing is stating where your identity was. Something temporal. Something that's going to change. See, there's nothing that can make you more stable than understanding these statements. I belong to Jesus, and I'm doing his will. In Christ, we have an identity. We have an identity that cannot be broken, cannot fail us, will not crumble. If you're truly anchored in Christ, then when the storms come, it might shake you a little. It might rock you, but it won't capsize you. And that's the truth. I love that thought. Actually, the Lord gave me that today when I was just studying and put that together. But if you're truly anchored in Christ, when the storms come, yes, it's going to shake you. It's going to rock your boat, but it's not going to capsize you because you're anchored in him. Jesus isn't your genie. He's your foundation. If your foundation is not anchored and secure, then whatever you're standing on will what? Fall. Will crumble, right? Have you ever stood on something that wasn't secure and you fell because it crumbled? If you're standing on your career, if you're standing on your love life, on your looks, on your weight, on your abilities or whatever you have going on, when it breaks and it will, you'll fall. You'll crumble. But if you're standing on Christ, when those things fall, you'll continue to stand because your foundation is in him. Even if everything else around you crumbles. You see, this is what anchored Paul. This is what drove him. It wasn't his achievements. It wasn't his intellect. It wasn't his amazing athletic skill and prowess. It was Christ. And even if you go out tonight and something drastically happens in your life, a storm in a sense comes upon your life, it's not going to cause you to crumble if you're truly anchored in Christ. Amen. But so many Christians are not anchored in Christ. So when the storms come, they crumble because their identity was in themselves. 
I'm not saying when, when the storm comes, you're like, oh yeah, this is praise the Lord for it. Like I said on Sunday, I'm so thankful that my son had to, had to die. That, that, no, that's not what I'm saying. You're gonna be shaken a little bit. You're gonna be rocked, but you're not gonna fall if you're anchored in Christ because he is your sure foundation. But if you're not anchored in Christ, when those storms come and they will come, you're going to fall. So where's your foundation? You see, this is what anchored Paul. This is what drove him. It, again, it wasn't all these things that he had. He had a great list of accomplishments. It was Christ. And the more I studied the Apostle Paul, especially this past couple of years, the more I want to be like him. The more, more importantly, the more I want to be like Christ. Because even Paul was human. Even Paul failed. And I close with this. In Christ, there are certain things that we have versus being apart from Christ. You see, being apart from Christ, here's some things that we have. Failure. Oppression. Bondage. Guilt. Fear. A fake identity. And the, the list could could continue on. Some things you can just write down if you want. I didn't have him put it up there. It's going to do something a little different. But apart from Christ, we have failure, we have oppression, we have bondage, we have guilt, we have fear. What it comes down to is this. We have a fake identity. But here's what we have in Christ. Spiritual blessings. Acceptance. Redemption. Forgiveness. The Holy Spirit, reconciliation, peace, grace, mercy, love, truth, citizenship in heaven. We have understanding, we have wisdom, we have salvation, we have hope. <coughs> Excuse me. We have a purpose, and most importantly, we have an identity. Apart from Christ, we have a fake identity that will crumble, that will fall, but in Christ, we have an identity that is sure, that is secure, that is founded upon Him. And that's what it comes down to. And I can't wait to, to dive deeper into this in the weeks to come. But in Christ, we are free. Free from the bondage of sin. We are free to live the life that Christ wants us to live. But so many of us are holding on to things that we think are important. Well, then you're missing out on what authentic biblical Christianity looks like. You're missing out on what the abundant life looks like. And you're staking your identity in something that's temporal instead of something that's eternal. Again, if you're truly anchored in Christ and the storms come, it might shake you, it might rock you, but it won't capsize you.